Hello there, you're listening to Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 11, from the British Society of Dowsers. I'm Graham Gardner. We're in a slightly light-hearted mood this episode, as I interview author Jeff Holder. And now, I originally met Jeff when he contacted me uh, when he was researching his book, The Guide to Mysterious Glasgow. And he interviewed me for that, and I was able to put him in contact with a lot of other people who could help him with his research. So it seemed only fair that I returned the favour and interviewed him for podcast. I managed to catch up with Jeff at a top-secret location somewhere in Cardiff, and uh, this music might give you a little bit of a clue. Well, we're coming to you today from the luxurious surroundings of Cardiff's Millennium Centre, a wonderful piece of architecture located in Cardiff Bay. It'll be familiar to fans of Doctor Who as the secret base of Torchwood. Uh, there's no particular reason for us doing the podcast from here. It's just that the paths of my guest and me happen to have intersected here at this point in space-time. But in a way, it's quite appropriate that we are coming from Torchwood, as my guest is uh, researcher and author Jeff Holder, chronicler of the strange, the unusual, the fortean, the mysterious, the paranormal, and the downright weird. Jeff is the author of several books, The Guides to Mysterious Perthshire, Mysterious Iona and Staffa, Mysterious Loch Ness and Inverness, Mysterious Arran, and the forthcoming Guides to Mysterious Glasgow, Stirling, Aberdeenshire, Lake District, and Sky and Loch Alsh. Have I missed any out there, Jeff? No, that's complete. You're <laughs> right. also making me sound a lot more interesting than I actually am. But we'll, we'll, we'll run with it. <laughs> well, thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, now, I'm detecting a bit of a theme to the books here. Uh, how did you get into researching this sort of stuff? Well, I've been interested in the, the subject matter, which you, which you might, for general purposes, call sort of forty and strange and peculiar, f- uh, for a great many years. In fact, since I was about five, when I got my first book on dinosaurs that kind of got me into the whole thing dinosaurs dragons and mythology and then a couple of years ago i just started writing books about it and it's snowballed ever since hmm. so how do you go about uh, gathering your material well i'd like to say that i sort of just lounge around in a velvet dressing gown whilst a, a, a whole army of serfs do the work for me but sadly it's not like that at all um i do uh, documentary research uh, you know, books, newspapers, uh, ephemera, and on the net, and then I physically go out and bump into all the, all the things I'm looking for. I also talk to a great many people as well. And do you go out and take photographs of the sites you're talking about? That's right. I visit everything that I write about, and I take photographs when I'm there. Right. Hmm. Uh, so are you planning to continue this series until you've covered the whole of the UK? Well, I suspect the whole of the UK might be overly ambitious, but... Um, Scotland certainly is is a possibility. Um, there are, uh, other than the ones you've mentioned, there are another five books commissioned. Wow. Um, so uh, that's very pleasing. Uh, so what, what areas are you most interested in yourself? I mean, do you have any particular favourites? Um, I'm particularly fond of uh, megalithic monuments, stone circles, standing stones and such like, um, as well as areas such as holy wells. Um, and I'm very keen on fairyland or associations with fairyland and also sort of more modern elements such as um, uh, associations with 
uh, film or television or literature, uh, particularly if they have a sort of horror or science fiction or fantasy nature. What, you mean like film locations and stuff? Such, yeah, that's, co- that's the kind right. of thing, yes. So a big fan of being in touch with then, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it is most appropriate, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Um, have you had any uh, unusual experiences while you've been researching? This? Well, one of the characteristics of the way that I am is that nothing ever happens to me. I've been in places where people have picked up the vibes and felt so ill that they've had to leave. I've been with mediums who've, be, who've in my presence, have communicated with people from the distant past. I've, people, I've been with people who've channeled Celtic saints. I've been with people who've seen elves and ghosts. And not a single thing have I ever experienced during that time. Not a single hair on the back of the neck. Not a single one. And I spend more time in graveyards old churches, ruined buildings than probably most people. And I'm afraid I'm just dull and boring in this respect. Well, I know you're certainly a spectacular failure and as one of my dowsing students, <laughs> one yes. of the handful of people I haven't Would, managed to do, get. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> no, you can tell it if you want. Well, um, uh, you very kindly took me to uh, a labyrinth, yeah, Castle Milk Castle in, Glas- in Glasgow, uh, which you'd previously doused. And uh, on the way there, I did tell you that I was hopeless at dowsing, and you poo-pooed me. You said, no, everyone can douse, and I said, no, that's not true. Then you tried me out, and how bad was I? Uh, Spectacularly bad. Indeed so. (laughs) Rods didn't move an inch. No. Now, uh, you mentioned holy wells earlier, and I know you've just recently given a talk to the West of Scotland dowsers about them, which I was absolutely gutted that I couldn't be there. Um, So what's what's the fascination with wells? I think there's, there's two things. One that I have a, a one of the general things that I'm really interested in is is when you're dealing with the mysterious, the strange, the peculiar, is what physical remains can, can you actually go and see? Can you touch? Can you, in the case of holy wells, can you even taste? Uh, most cases with the, the mystical, they don't. It leaves no uh, trace elements. But you know, holy wells, you can, you can, when you're there, you're at a site where people have been um, engaging in some kind of ritual behaviour for centuries if not millennia that's a very special thing and so and you can go to the well and you can uh, sort of experience to an extent what what they experienced walk in their footsteps and also uh, wells are a portal you can you, you can use holy wells to look at things such as um, communication with the gods particularly in a sort of pre-christian context um, early Christianity, Dark Age saints, medieval pilgrimages, miracles, healing, uh, post-Reformation suppression, uh, the attack of the state on popular culture, um, landscaping, follies, um, and modern veneration by pagans as well. So one humble holy well can, in a a way, act as a window into all of those things. So in a way, they're a kind of psychogeographical map. uh, Indeed so, yes. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm particularly interested in them uh, myself, actually. Um, I always try and go and visit one if I I know where there there is one. Um, I had an interesting experience in Lewis uh, a couple of years ago with um, Jill Smith, where we went to Brideswell, which she discovered, uh, which is... um, can't remember the name of the village now, uh, but it's very neglected. And every time she's there, she goes and cleans it out. And we went and did that in this little culvert that you clear out, and the water starts flowing, sparkling. And it was an absolutely lovely experience. Um, and it's, it's a shame in a way that uh, you know they aren't venerated as much in Scotland as they used to be. Indeed, so um, often when I'm going in search of holy wells, it can can be a very frustrating 
uh, experience because I'll have some notes that I've you know I've researched. I'll I'll have a, a location on the map. Sometimes it's a very putative location, and sometimes I can search for ages. Ask the people who live nearby. In many cases, they have no idea. Even older people have no idea where it is. This is this is a common experience. And occasionally, I'll blunder actually by accident on the well, and it'll be uh, either silted up or covered um, with you know mossed up, or it'll have a sort of um, um, sort of modern offerings such as coke cans and crisp packets and you know other rubbish like that, just choking it up. Yeah, we don't seem to have the tradition of uh, well-dressing ceremonies that uh, is, are still quite popular down in England. Derbyshire is the centre of, of well-dressing. Mm. It's still um, a, a, a very popular and continued uh, ritual that uh, takes place in a great in a great many locations in, in Derbyshire, also parts of Yorkshire as, as well, and um, I think Staffordshire, indeed. And some places, such as the, the few wells in the north and west of Wales, which are still venerated, um, Cumbria, where I've just been recently, I've been researching the Guide to the Mysterious Lake District. That's uh, particularly interesting because a lot of wells there were restored in the year 2000. Communities got grants to, to restore them. So now is actually a good time to go and see holy wells, much better than it was a decade ago because many of them are actually now visitable. Mm. Well, I mean, certainly uh, Malvern, where the BSD offices are located, uh, still has an annual well-dressing ceremony. Excellent. And they have a great number of wells in the hills there. Um, I'm, I tend to think that uh, it probably dates back to the, uh, the sort of Celtic times, would that be correct? The problem with um, trying to investigate the history of holy wells is that for the vast majority of holy wells, for the vast majority of lives, we know absolutely nothing. The surmise, and it is only a surmise, is that most of them were venerated in pre-Christian times uh, by people who believed that, they were, that the well had a, a genius loci, a deus loci, a spirit of the place, and that most of them were then Christianized during the Dark Ages, either directly by one of the, the saints or the, the holy men of the period or by association with them. However, that's only a surmise. In most cases, we don't have any evidence for this whatsoever. And my suspicion is that in many cases it's actually the reverse. Rather than the well being holy because it's blessed by a saint, the well's holy because an early church was established there, and the church in a, one of the key sacraments of church, particularly in, a, in a, where your locals are not Christian, is baptism. And so what you need is a good source of clean water for baptism. And I think what happened in many cases is that the well became holy by association with the church, as this thing from already being venerated. On the other hand, I could be completely wrong because in most cases we really don't know. Well, no, I mean, I, I know a couple of instances where uh, the, the water from the well has been channeled through the church um, at the back of the altar, you know, presumably for um, such use. Indeed, so there used to be a church, sadly no longer with us, in the Lake District where the water from the stream, which is dedicated to St. John the Baptist, actually came through the nave. It came th- right through the nave and people had to put wooden boards over it so they didn't get their feet wet during divine service. Mm. And there are no... Cumbria in particular is very interesting because it has a lot of very early establishments of churches, some of them going back to the 6th century. And many of them have been found to actually be actually on the site of wells. And uh, Salisbury Cathedral, I think, has a stream running down the middle. That's correct, yes. That's yeah. right. there, there, were, there were a number of examples of this uh, all the way through the UK. Yeah. Um, I was quite interested in the ones in the Western Isles because they all seem to have a tradition of healing associated with them you know, for, for various ailments. Certainly in Scotland... Um, you find most wells that have some veneration attached to them, uh, the reason that the, the veneration is there is for healing. And we find uh, time and time again um, 
after the Reformation has taken place and pilgrimages were Wales, to Wales were banned, we find in the parish records people being prosecuted for going on Wales. And when they are asked why they did it, it's, it's for healing. Yeah, I mean, I guess often there wasn't any uh, other particular cure for uh, for anything. So well, indeed, whether, it, whether in, it's an act of faith or whatever. It in, indeed work. not. Uh, you, you, what you have to imagine is that in 1516, when the Reformation takes place in Scotland, um, it's like you are now banned from going to the NHS, that you, know, you, you can't go to the doctor, mm. you can't go to the hospital. And so people resisted that, not, not surprisingly, because it was probably the only sort of health service that they knew. Do you think there's any uh, association, uh, going way back again to uh, the sort of Celtic um, mindset, um, of them being a portal to the underworld? There are a number of examples in archaeological contexts from the south of England showing that wells and places where there was a habitation such as a fort were clearly regarded as being potent in some way because many of them have offerings, I mean major offerings in them, and others... Um, were closed off. They were ritually closed off when the when the place was abandoned. In places such as Perthshire, uh, within uh, the, um, the sort of the, the network of rivers and bogs associated with the River Tay, there's been a very rich source of um, uh, materials uh, taken there for, that were deposited during the Iron Age, including in one case a bronze cauldron, which is so huge that it must have been the equivalent of sacrificing a BMW. I mm. mean, you know, they're very high-status objects, and they were deposited in watery environments, obviously as a way of communicating with the gods. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Now, stone circles uh, is your, your other passion. This is uh, also a bit of a passion I share, I think. Um, so you, I believe you're producing a book on Aberdeenshire stone circles? Well, no, no. The, 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 the book I'm writing at the moment is called 101 Things to Do with a Stone Circle. Oh, right, yes. Um, and it's, uh, it's a bit different to most stone circle books in is that it's not about archaeology. Mm. It's about history. Right. So it's what people have thought about and done with stone circles and standing stones over the past six or seven hundred years. So that ranges from everything from using them as places for crime, sorry, for punishment and justice, um, to um, fertility rituals, to um, garden features, and um, use in things like you know rock festivals and um, spinal tap and all that that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Aberdeenshire uh, is quite a, a favourite area of mine because there are more stone circles there than anywhere else in the UK. That's right. Uh, and they, they have a particular style to them as well. There's a, there's a regional vernacular architecture of stone circles in Aberdeenshire. And the next book I'm doing is The Guide to Mysterious Aberdeenshire. So I'll be concentrating on those stone circles then. I mean, why do you think there are so many up there? You're asking the wrong person, I, 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 I suspect. Um, it's a question I constantly ask. Uh, as, you know. It will be uh, something to do with, the obviously, with the culture of the people there. Um, but also, uh, to an extent, there's so many there because they've survived. You know, so many stone circles and other megalithic monuments have been destroyed by agriculture or urban development. For some reason, a great many have survived in, in Aberdeenshire. And in some cases, I don't know whether you know the one at Midmar, yeah, but Midmar. the stone circle there is in the middle of the churchyard. Yeah. And in, most, in many other locations, they would, they would have destroyed the stones, but here they've, they've preserved them. Well, this is quite a tradition of building a church and you know, taking over the, the, the ancient site. Um, actually, we had quite a good uh, dowsing um, find at uh, Knowlton Church in Dorset, uh, where um, one of our archaeology groups actually located uh, a buried megalith that was still uh, in the, the circle. But, I mean, the church is right in the middle of the circle there. Um, there's another example in Donino in Fife, 
where the stone circle was on the site it was smashed up but you can still locate the stones in the in the churchyard wall and in the porch of the church itself and each of them has been actually marked with a cross hmm. <laughs> uh, well jeff thanks very much for talking to us that's been that's been great Thank you very much for inviting me along here. It's a, it's it's a it's a pleasant coincidence that we both happen to be in Cardiff well, at, at, the, at the same time when neither of us live here. <laughs> yes, I should point out that we're both actually resident in Scotland normally, yes. so it's completely coincidence that we're here at Torchwood. Right. I had a little push for time during that interview, and I didn't think I'd gotten the best out of Jeff. I think he was a little intimidated by being in Torchwood. Actually, truth be told, I think we both were. So, a couple of weeks later, I went along to the launch of his book, The Guide to Mysterious Glasgow, to see what he had to say. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much indeed for coming along. Uh, my name is Jeff Holder, and I'm author of The Guide to Mysterious Glasgow. And um, someone asked me today, a journalist phoned me up, and someone asked me what, what I was, what, what I did, and. I, you know, I told the users that, oh yeah, I'm a researcher and a writer, but I had a corrective to this later on in the day. I was in Tesco's, and I uh, met up with someone I hadn't seen for some time, and it turned out he'd been away on a boat voyage for a few months, and he said, oh, it was great, there was, there was this couple there, they were really interested in stone circles and para, you know, paranormal stuff, They're total crackpots, and I thought of you. And I thought, oh, thanks very much. He said, no, 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 don't think it's bad, don't think it's bad. Said, they were nutty crackpots. They were sensible crackpot. So uh, with that um, qualified praise ringing in my ears, I sort of uh, came here tonight. Now, the book is a, a guide to everything weird and wonderful and paranormal and peculiar and strange and supernatural and fantastic and foolish that's uh, been either happened or been reported to have happened or alleged to have happened uh, in Glasgow and it's worked, the way it works is on a street by street or area by area basis so if you live in the West End or Rutherglen or Queen's Park or you're walking along West Nile Street everything about that area is in one part of the book so it's all the, the things that alleged to have happened as well as things that you can see today and there's a small part of that I was, if this had been uh, a bit later on in the year, you could have done this. When you leave the building tonight, it won't be a city because it's too dark, but if you, uh, if you come back in the daytime on this very building, at the very, very top, there is a uh, bright golden sun with a cheerful face on it. Um, and if you look at the buildings across um, the, the road, that way, um, you'll find carvings of nine women and one man, all in classical dress, associated with strange things like cockerels and uh, scrolls and flaming torches and spears and all that sort of thing. And there's another sun with a smiling face on it poking out from one, from one of the arches. Now, I have no idea what these things mean. General assumption, this kind of solar imagery carved on Glasgow's buildings is something to do with Freemasonry, which it could well be. But on the other hand, it could something be it could be something personal that's associated in the, with the minds of the people who designed and built these things. And if they didn't write anything down, then there's no record of it. And our interpretation of what is on these buildings is basically speculation. Now, the reason I, I, I mention this is because the book talks a lot about what I call the silent watchers. Glasgow is an absolute cornucopia, fantastic cornucopia of uh, architectural sculpture. 
There's gods and goddesses and heroes from Norse myths and ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome, Babylon, Persia. There's saints and angels, fairies, demons, dragons, monsters. There's cats, there's crocodiles, there's grotesques, green men, gargoyles. There's hundreds of them all around Glasgow and they're usually way up above uh, eye level so you don't notice them in your daily rush as you're going past. But in on my regard, they're kind of looking at you. They're kind of like keeping an eye on the citizens of Glasgow. So that's why I call them the silent watches. Um, now, the way I kind of tend to work, well, I, as an analogy, you know when, um, you know when you're doing some building work in your house and you hire a skip, and you put the skip outside and you put, fill it with rubbish when you're doing that kind of stuff. Isn't it, there's always someone who sort of ambles by going, you know, see if they can sort of you know spot something in the skip that, that they might be of value. Well, I'm kind of like that, the cultural equivalent of that, if you like. I spend my time sifting through newspapers and specialist journals and magazines and old books and all these kind of sources, and I want to bring back, oh, look at this, it's fantastic. And so please don't make any jokes about it being a bunch of old rubbish, okay? No, not, uh, not necessary. So that's kind of, the, that's what I bring back. And what I tend to bring back are Stories, fantastic stories, stories of the paranormal, the strange, of peculiar experiences, and that sort of thing. Now, there's one of the, the, the overriding uh, concerns I have is whether any of these things, there's any truth in any of them. That, and that's actually very, very hard to tell with the strange supernatural paranormal anyway. But specifically, that's a difficulty in Glasgow. And the reason is, is because, as far as I can tell, the population of Glasgow seems to be genetically pre-programmed with the ability to tell tall tales at the, at the, the top of a hat. <laughs> top of a hat? Top of a hat. Um, I, you, you've probably all heard one or two stories already today from people in work or on, or, or on the way to work. And I give you an illustration of how this can um, shape and influence uh, the, the, the gathering of, the, of these stories of the strange. Some of you may, may know this particular tale. There was this chap, um, and uh, he'd, had a, he'd had a few jars of an evening, and he was in the underground station and in, in Glasgow, and he got, he got caught short. Now, there's no public facilities in the underground stations, so what he did, he decided to walk along the little narrow path that goes in just a little bit into the tunnel, sort of the service path, where he would be able to relieve himself out of, um, out of sight of, uh, of anyone else. Unfortunately, he forgot that the um, the cable running along the opposite wall was actually live electricity. So when the arc of liquid hit that cable, it turned back and instantly vaporized him, leaving only his boots melted to the pavement. And they were there for some time later, and a large number of people went and seen them. Tell me, has anyone ever heard that story or anything like it? No? One. Well. I can tell you for an absolute fact that that's an urban legend. I know it's an urban legend because I've spoken to the guy who invented it. Back in the late 60s, a chap called John Braithwaite, who was a student at the time, uh, took on a bet. And the bet was that he could not create an urban legend in the weekend. So he and his mates got together and they invented that story that I've just told you. And on Friday night, they each went to separate pubs and they very loudly told that story to, to themselves and then to anyone else who would listen. And on Sunday afternoon, John was in a pub and someone said, I've got this great story. You know, this is, this is the underground station. There's this guy and, he, and, and, and his boots are still there. So, and that story is kind of like still going, still going the grounds. And that's kind of a good indication of the, of the, of the way that sort of the, the Glasgow culture sort of uh, builds up stories. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give sort of just 
three examples from the book. And fantasy plays possibly a role in some of them. It's hard, the question is, is where, where, where that level, level is. Um, the, the first story is from 1954. 1954 in Glasgow was the year of the vampire. Hundreds of school children invaded the southern necropolis in the Gorbals. Some of them, according to reports, armed with crucifixes and stakes. And what they were looking for was the vampire with iron teeth, which had supposedly killed and eaten two small boys. The parents were so concerned they called the police to marshal up the, the, the children. There were so many of them. When the police arrived, not only were there you know, all these sort of rather frightened children there, but adults were coming up to them and saying, is there anything in these vampire stories? Which really sort of, sort of put, took the police back. That night, some of the children were so scared that they couldn't sleep, and parents allegedly had to give them uh, sleeping tablets to make sure that they went to bed. The following day in the local schools, the headmaster had to gather pupils, pupils together and say, there's nothing to this story, it's, it's complete fantasy. Uh, one of the local politicians made a statement that it was, some, it was the, the, the nefarious influence of American horror comics like Tales from the Crypt, which is a kind of a moral panic of the, of the time. But within 24 hours, the whole thing had evaporated. Now, people who study these things don't like to use the word um, mass hysteria anymore. They call it uh, collective delusion. But this was a collective delusion of a, with a bubble, with, a, with a, a lifetime of about 24 hours, uh, 36 hours at the most. And after that, it just vanished. No one, was, no one believed it, no one was concerned about it. And the, um, the Eden News on the second day published the immortal headline, Vampire with Metal Teeth is Dead. Uh, even as a even as a tabloid journalist, you don't get the right, that kind of thing very often, uh, uh, and that's a very good example of the, of the way that sort of yeah, so stories can just bubble up into the culture and become real, and then they just evaporate as if they never were. Second story is about a different kind of evidence, much more unpleasant. In 1818, a very very nasty man called Matthew Clydesdale was convicted of beating an old man to death, one of a series of crimes, of violent crimes that he, he, he committed. And his sentence was not only to be hanged by the neck until he was dead, but that after the hanging, his body would be taken to the anatomists and, and dissected. Now, for many people at the time, this was deemed a truly horrible punishment. And it was a punishment. It was a post-mortem punishment. Clydesdale, um, he had tried to commit suicide in, in jail to try to avoid not being hanged but being, being cut up by the anatomists uh, and it didn't work. And the belief was at the time that if you were cut up by the, the, the anatomists, then you know, because you were in parts, you wouldn't get into heaven. How a murderer, wife beater and general thug like Matthew Clarsdale thought he was going to get into heaven in the first place, I really don't know, but that was the theory. Anyway, come the day, Matthew Clarsdale was hanged and he was taken to the anatomy theatre, but things were going to be a bit different that day. They weren't just going to cut him up and look at his muscles and, and his, his anatomy as part of the teaching lesson. They were going to experiment with a new technology called electricity, um, which was kind of like a new fad at the time, and nobody really understood what was going on. But they, the electricity had been invented. It was called galvanism at the time. And Matthew Clydesdale, corpse Matthew Clydesdale, was hooked up to a galvanic battery and then things took a, uh, a, a turn for the worst. Firstly, he's, his chest expanded. He seemed to draw breath. 
life seemed to come back into the corpse's um, body. Limbs agitated. He turned and looked at the audience. He pointed a finger accusingly at the audience as if they were complicit in his torment. And he struggled to his feet from, from the seat and lurched across the stage, menacing the people there. People fainted, there was screaming, and then the doctor picked up the lancet and plunged it into his neck and Matthew Clydesdale died for the second time. Dramatic stuff, eh? Well, it was true. Unfortunately, most of it is fantasy. The story that I've just told you, which has been repeated again and again, was written by a guy called Peter Mackenzie in a book called Reminiscences of Glasgow, which he wrote almost 50 years after the event. And I have a feeling that memory may have played tricks with uh, with, with Peter. In fact, it's possible it wasn't even actually a, the event at all, that he might have actually got the story from someone else. What really happened on the day, we know about because uh, there was a report in a specialist medical journal that came out just a few months after the event, written by one of the doctors who was actually attending the event. So you think you might, you might have a clear idea of what, what actually happened. Matthew Clydesdale was not reanimated because what the dramatic account omitted to mention, that when he arrived at the anatomy theater, they drained all his blood. And then they took out a part of his spine here so they could put the but, and this time, he was, he was dead. No one with no blood in their, their body can, can be revived. Um, and the, all the, the dramatic movements and all that sort of thing, firstly, most of it didn't happen. A few things did happen, but they were, they were caused by the uh, stimulation of the nerves by, by electrical wires. So at one point, he was stimulated back here, and he did that. And it appeared to some of the audience that he was, he was alive. The clenching of the fist, that was people sort of just basically playing with his brain going, oh, that's what happened, oh, does that, oh, does that, does that, does that, oh, oh, yeah. And the same with the grimaces. They were basically uh, sort of experimenting with, 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 with electricity. He didn't stand up, he didn't threaten, and there was certainly no plunging of the scalpel into the net. The whole thing, I suspect, has to do with something that, in fact, 50 years had passed, and the story had been embellished in the telling. You can imagine how it would be. But also possibly for the, the, for the influence of book you might have heard of called Frankenstein. And it, it seemed to be that the, the, uh, the, the two things were uh, working together. Now, one of the strange things about this story is the way that it actually feeds in, in, into itself. Because when I was researching the Guide to Mr. Glasgow, three people, two of them tour guides, told me that Mary Shelley got the idea for writing Frankenstein because she was present at the time when Matthew Clydesdale was allegedly brought to life by electricity. Once again, it's a great story. And it's completely untrue. Because the dates don't work, don't, don't match. Mary Shelley, we know, wrote the first draft of Frankenstein in 1816, and it was published in the spring of 1818. And Matthew Clydesdale paid his debt to life in November 1818. So the, the entire thing is, a complete, is completely spurious. But you can see how the Frankenstein novel fed into Peter Mackenzie's story of what happened on that night. And now Peter Mackenzie's story is feeding into the, sort of like the Frankenstein myth, show, showing that, that Mary Shelley was in Glasgow at the time. And I'm willing to bet that that story will continue to be perpetuated. Uh, that you know, Mary Shelley got the idea because she was in Glasgow when the, the murderer was reanimated. The third story I'd like to, to share with you is something completely different. If you go to Sight Hill Park, which is just north of the M8, 
you'll find a stone circle there. It's a very fine stone circle. It's a bit graffitied and you know, it's a bit unkempt, but it's a very, very, very substantial stone circle. Um, now, stone circles, there are hundreds of which there are hundreds and hundreds in the British Isles, mostly built between uh, 5,200 and 3,000 years ago, roughly. Maybe, maybe some of them were, were, were a bit later. And even with all the new advances in archaeological science, it's still hard to pinpoint exactly when an individual circle was, was constructed. And usually with best guess, they can manage it within a few decades. But the stone circle at Cycle Park, we know exactly when it was built. It was built in spring 1979. Um, and the story behind it is this. Um, for those of you who uh, have sufficient uh, years on your docket to remember the 1970s, well, possibly remember something called the Manpower Services Commission, which was a government body designed to basically take people off the unemployment roll. And Glasgow Council managed to wangle a whole bunch of money out of the Manpower Services Commission. And part of uh, the jobs that they created was were to um, basically build a stone circle. Um, after a couple of false starts, they, um, they got a, uh, a well-known Glasgow science fiction writer amateur astronomer called Duncan Moonen involved and sort of managed the project. And you know all and, and all the resources were brought to, to bear on that, this, uh, this 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 project. Uh, stones came from a, a quarry, they were transported by a low loader, some of them by helicopter, uh, they were put in place by JCBs. It was also very exciting and glamorous and and you know it, it, I think it must have been really quite a, a sort of extraordinary thing. Unfortunately in May 1979, at least unfortunately for the project, in May 1979, there was a general election. And the Conservatives came to power. And a certain Prime Minister Thatcher stood up in the Houses of Parliament, House of, House of Commons, and said, uh, one of the things that we will do uh, when we're now in, in power, we will get rid of these ridiculous job creation schemes, including that of a really stupid stone circle being built in Glasgow. So the circle wasn't actually finished. And it never has been finished because um, all all um, work immediately stopped. Uh, however, it's still there. It's still strange and mysterious. And if you have time this weekend and the weather is favourable, I would thoroughly recommend that you go up to Cycle Park and visit the, the circle. And whilst you're there, you can consider that you're on the site of the only stone circle in the British Isles that really hacked off Margaret Thatcher which I think possibly may be something to be, um, to be proud of. So having covered, as I recall, urban legends, uh, vampires, resurrected murderers, and Tory annoying stone circles, I think what I'm going to do is draw the talk to a brief close, and I'm happily take any questions, if I have any, any, any questions either of what I've talked about or any of the topics um, within uh, in Glasgow generally. So, Thank you very much. Any questions? Did you visit Proven Hall House? Yes. What did you think of Proven Hall House? Right. Uh, for, those, for those of you who don't know, Proven Hall House is um, out in the, in the Easter House area. It's um, possibly Glasgow's oldest medieval building. Fantastic place. It's little visited because of its it's like off the tourist route. <clears throat> it I, I, in the book I describe it as Glasgow's most haunted. 
Um, it has been consistently, sorry, it's been investigated several times by the Ghost Club, um, and their um, investigation has been quite meticulous. And it seems quite possible, quite likely, that um, some of the things that, that have been recorded as taking place at Thornville are, possi are possibly paranormal. You see, I'm being very cautious here, but you know, it, it's, it's such, such an intensity of apparently paranormal phenomena at Thorben Hall that it really makes it one of the places that if you're interested in this kind of thing that you really, really need, need to visit. <clears throat> um, the uh, caretaker, this guy called Stevie, um, has got a fantastic wealth of stories, some of which feature him um, doing, uh, and really, really alarming ways. Um, we can, but there verif was we can, we can <laughs> verify you can that. Ver you can ver we are the ghost. You are the ghost. Can verify oh, that. Oh, 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 yeah. um, now, I have to point out that all these places I go to, all these you know, uh, sort of allegedly haunted houses and uh, uh, ancient places, nothing, absolutely nothing has ever happened to me. I have not had the single tremor, <laughs> not single vibe. I have not seen any apparitions or heard any voices. No spirits have spoken to me. I've seen no fairies or elves. I've had no communication with you know, masters from the, from the past world. Nothing ever happened. I've been with people who claim that those things haven't happened to them, but nothing ever happens to me. That's probably because I'm really boring. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the spirits just think I'm dull and not worth not worth bothering about. So I can't I can't I can't verify anything at Robin Hall. But one of the interesting things that happened to me when I was there, <clears throat> I, I happened to turn up on a day when several other members of staff from what was it Glasgow Parks were on it. Yeah. Glasgow Park Service. Yeah. Several of the members of staff of Glasgow Park Service were there on basically on a, kind of like a tour. So I just turned up, hadn't arranged it in advance, nobody knew I was coming, nobody knew at, during the tour that I was uh, writing the book about Mysterious um, uh, Glasgow. And we did the tour of uh, two, the sort of two adjacent buildings. One of them was mostly 18th century, one of them was medieval. And we went into the uh, medieval building and into the room where I later learned is the alleged focus of the sort of the paranormal uh, events, and one of the women in the group who'd never been there absolutely refused to go in. She said she just stood at the and said, "I can't go in there." It, 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 you know, now it's possible that she'd heard stories before. Well, she did tell me afterwards that she hadn't, that she knew absolutely nothing about it, and that they would, and that as they tend not to, you know, promote the ghost side of things to sort of other members of staff understandably, that she didn't know anything about it. And you know, that, that came out in the chat later. But it was really fascinating, because you know, I'm blithely going in, oh, right, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we won't find She's going, absolutely, stop still at that. said there's got a really bad atmosphere. So that's the only thing that I can, I, I can uh, repeat there. Um, but I would say that if you're interested in this kind of thing, phone up Robin Hall, arrange to, to have a tour, and go on it, because it's fabulous. I had a small question. Yeah. Uh, you told us a story about the urban legend creator, about yeah, the man yeah, relieving yeah, himself yeah, in yeah. the underground station. Point is, I heard that in Italy. You heard in Italy? In Italian, about a gentleman relieving himself from a bridge over a railway. <laughs> being vaporized. And actually, he should still there. When did you hear it? Uh, five or six years ago. Five or six years ago. Do you know whether it went back any further than that? Well, 
this friend of mine told me that it was an old story, an old but story. I don't know what it means. See, one thing you but the point is, we don't have underground stations in that town. So you can't have your story yeah, in the underground exactly. station. What you need for the story is the electricity line, don't right, you? Exactly. Yeah. So it seems to me there's possibly two routes of transmission, only two. One is that the story originated in Glasgow and has made its way through, through sort of storyteller networks to Italy. And secondly, is that although John Bakery told me he'd invented it, perhaps he'd heard it somewhere else. I mean, you know, he's now, he told me this last year, and that's several decades after, after he invented it. Perhaps his memories, perhaps he, he'd completely forgotten about reading it somewhere when he was a teenager. And, and read, so it's, it's, it's possible, but it's really hard to pin that down. That's brilliant. Oh, it? by the way, I heard it about two, three weeks ago, set in the low-level station at Glasgow Central. You, 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 I heard it some weeks ago, yeah. yeah it, was, and, it was originally Buchanan Street. Yeah, all right. It was originally Buchanan Street, but um, uh, I think John was told when he on the on the on the Sunday, he was told he was told that it was um, Hillhead. All right. I think. Now the thing about the Buchanan Street is the only one that's got it. The, the only one has got it, but that, that doesn't matter for telling the yeah. story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you and and someone told you it as true. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course yeah. <laughs> and when did when when did they say it happened? It just. In the 60s. In the 60s, right, yeah. Tell me, Marco, was it a Glasgow man that, 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 that this happened to you in Italy? Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> the man in Italy that this happened to, was he an Italian man or was he a Glasgow man? Might be a good question. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask. <laughs> Don't ask. Well, the other interesting thing about the sort of thing that John told me is that in the original story that he'd invented, the man was an electrician. Uh, yeah, so he should have known better. That's, that's like the point of the story. He should have known better. But when, in its mutated form later, he turns out to be a burglar. And he's not actually, you know, just caught short on stage. He's hiding from the police, so it serves him right. <laughs> you know? So see the way, the way the story sort of just developed. It's got a life of its own. And, you know, this guy invents this story over a weekend, sometime like, what, 67, 68, something like that. And, you know, he just, like, lets it fly out into the world. And it's now just, you know, circling. Certainly in the globe. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if elsewhere, I wonder if Tokyo Underground, New York Underground has, has, has got the sort of, sort of similar story. It's entirely possible. I really, I really don't know. And that sort of illustrates a sort of general point, which is that I'm guessing at least a third of the stories in the Guide to Mysterious Glasgow, someone, if they didn't make up, they at least, you know, jollied up a bit. Gussied up a bit at some point. If only I knew which third. I have no idea. You know, it's impossible. Even if it's written down by a respected chronicler or a, a great historian, doesn't mean to say that it was it actually happened. You know, and and you know, I could talk about this forever. But there's a lot of stuff about druids in Glasgow, and everyone goes, "Oh, yeah, the druids—they're really ancient, and all the stories are ancient." And they're not. The first story about druids in Glasgow is in the 18th century. And there's not, there's not a single, and that's written by a very respected historian who said. All he said was, there were Druids in Glasgow. Didn't give any sources. Didn't give any, he, just, he just wanted there to be Druids in Glasgow. So he kind of basically invented the Druids in Glasgow story. And people keep coming back to him and say, well, he's the authority. He must know. He was a historian. And he was respected by his peers. But you know, if you look at his original, there's absolutely nothing to, give, to, to, to demonstrate that uh, they, they really were Druids. And that, that, that's the kind of thing that you, that you get with a lot of the historical sources. I suspect that some of them were playing fast and loose with the, with the, with the truth then. Mm. Anyone else? No. Okay. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Very much appreciate it.
that's just about all we've got time for today, but before we go, let me just mention that Jeff's latest book, 101 Things to Do with a Stone Circle, is going to be launched on the 26th of September in the National Trust Bookshop in Avebury. Now, by a staggering coincidence, this is also the weekend of our conference just up the road in Sirencester, and we will be having a field trip to Avebury on Saturday afternoon. So uh, we're hoping that uh, Jeff can be persuaded to come up the road on the Sunday so that we can uh, have a look at his new book, which does feature chapters on dowsing and earth energies, and more than one or two stone circles made by BSD members. So I'm certainly looking forward to seeing it. I trust you enjoyed our visit to the world of Torchwood today. We never did get to see that pterodactyl, you know, although I'm told they do let it out at night so that it can fly around the auditorium and get some exercise. Anyway, uh, that's really all we've got time for. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers, and for more details about dowsing and the Society's activities and how to become a member, please see our website at britishdowsers.org. Thank you very much for listening. My name's Graham Gardner. Join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.